David says to the chief musician, says the Psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Father, we thank you for your word. And um, we ask that the wisdom from it, the instruction in it, Lord, would be an encouragement to us. And that day by day we would find ourselves, our thinking being more conformed to it, and our lives, Lord, abiding by it. And um, so thank you. Lord, we thank you for Roy. I thank you for just the testimony of his life, his love for you. And uh, Lord, we pray now that as he is moving closer and closer towards your presence, Lord, it's imminent. We just pray that you would keep him. And Lord, that through all this, that he would enjoy fellowship with you until he wakes up in your presence, Lord. So Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, well... Uh, tonight, we're not going to uh, finish the exposition of the chapter. Uh, we'll only complete the first of the three sections, but um, what's the rush anyway? Okay. So to begin with, I just thought I would say, point out, speaking of Psalm 19, C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, The Reflection of the Psalms, he said on page 63, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And uh, C.S. Lewis knew the lyrics. He was very familiar with uh, literature from all over the planet. And uh, he says, it's the greatest poem in the Psalter, one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So when I said I was cherry-picking, um, I meant it. And uh, when we read uh, Psalm 19, of course, in others as well, we know that David was no slouch. Uh, the sons of Korah, uh, they were no slouches either when it came to uh, writing poetry and uh, poetic praise and, and so forth. So let's get into it. Um, interesting statement right there at the beginning. It says, to the chief musician. To the chief musician. Uh, I don't know who this chief musician was, and I don't know how many there may have been throughout the history of the Psalms. Uh, it's hard to say exactly. Uh, the chief musician is mentioned for the first time in Psalm 4. And he's mentioned 54 times in all of the 150 Psalms. 
Um, he most frequently accompanied David in his psalms. Uh, he also is with, we see occasionally with the sons of Korah, with Asaph, and then he's mentioned in one of the anonymous psalms, Psalm 66. And he knows who the author of the anonymous psalm was, I'll bet. So we can ask him when we get to heaven, and he'll lead us to that psalmist. Um, the, the chief musician was either the foremost uh, instrumentalist, or he was a, perhaps a choir director, uh, probably among the Levites, uh, that was for worship in the temple itself, according to David's instruction. Uh, that's from First Chronicles 15. And so let me uh, look at some of that with you, uh, which may be an explanation, possibly, of the, um, this person. Uh, perhaps you remember, of course, David had a failed attempt to bring the um, ark into Jerusalem. It was a debacle, and there was a serious oversight from the law. Does anybody require what that was? They brought it in on a cart being pulled by cattle. And the ark was only supposed to be carried on poles by the Levites. And the wrong person touched the ark, was struck down by the Lord, because uh, it's very clear in the law. And, uh, and so David uh, decided that following the instructions from the law was important. So then they did everything right the second time, bringing the ark into Jerusalem. It was quite the, uh, the affair. And what he did is he appointed the Levites to lead worship, singing praise, playing cymbals. Uh, it is pronounced lyres, right? Stringed instrument and harps. Uh, each instrumental department had a leader, but over all of the music was a man named uh, Kenaniah. He doesn't get a lot of attention uh, in the scriptures. I think his name is mentioned twice. There's another Kenaniah or Kenaniah in the scriptures, but it's a different man. But First Chronicles 15.22 says, Kenaniah, leader of the Levites, was instructor in charge of the music because he was skillful. That's First Chronicles 15.22. And then verse 27 goes on to say that Kenaniah was the master of the song with the singers. He was a Levite. He was the leader of the Levites, at least in the context of instrumentation and music and the rest. So possibly... Uh, this is the chief musician spoken of in verse 1, uh, but possibly only for David, because later on people were writing when David was dead, and I'm sure Kenaniah uh, was not enduring all of the ages that the, the Psalms were being written. And so, you know, of course, some people speculate this is perhaps where we find some justification for worship leaders in the church today. Of course, none of them are Levites, and none of them should be. Um, but what is interesting when you look at the history of all this, that we don't find, there's a couple things we don't find in the law of Moses. The first one is a worship leader, at least not in the occupation of singing. Seems like a grave oversight in the law of God, doesn't it? That there would be a, some prescription, some qualification of a leader, something like that. And then neither do we find a prescription in law to worship in song. Now we do find a prescription for a song. Does that surprise you? It's in Deuteronomy 31, 19. But it was a song that was to be sung as a witness against the children of Israel for apostasy. And then Moses taught them the song in Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 43. So I want you to teach this to your children as a testimony against you when you apostatize. Also knowing that if you repent, the Lord will show you mercy. Now, I personally would rather not sing that every Sunday about my apostasy and prayerfully my recovery. <laughs> 
So it's not until later, 400 years later, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that David instituted and organized worship in song for Israel. Now, the priests, of course, according to the law, they led the people in worship by way of sacrifice, just sacrifice. It wasn't until David that worship became an organized thing. David wrote at least most of the hymnal for Israel, and then he was the one that oversaw the worship leaders themselves, who then led the congregation in worship, especially most likely during the morning and evening sacrifice, and then during the three feasts of the year. Of course, we know that David wasn't the only one that wrote the Psalms. Moses wrote one, and then the sons of Korah and some other people. But then when we come to the New Covenant, we actually do find that there are imperatives and there's instruction for worshiping in song. Uh, Paul says that our worship uh, should be biblical. He says that it should be theological. It should be abundant. He says that it must be instructive. And I'll probably mess up the phonetic on this, but uh, exhortative, exhorting. It should be admonishing. It should be spiritual. It should be doxological. That's praise. It should be filled with thanksgiving. And it should be musical. Uh, I'm, I'm astounded sometimes by the groups today that, not many, but uh, entire denominations that have no musical instrumentation. And, um, and I've heard the arguments for it that they say, well, David was the one that did that. It's not in the law. But Jesus called David a prophet. So you can't really escape that. In Colossians 3.16, uh, Paul said, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Notice he says hymns. Hymns is a song with musical accompaniment. And it's not talking about my voice, okay? It's talking about instruments. That's Colossians 3.16. It's stated again very similarly in Ephesians 5, uh, 18b in verse 19. It says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. It's interesting. So in the New Testament, we, don't, we have a prescription and instruction for worship, but then the only really thing to turn to for uh, worship leader is spiritual leadership itself. And they may not directly be playing instruments and singing in front of the congregation, but they are called to oversee uh, all things of worship in the church. Uh, I would say that God has appointed spiritual leadership to be the guardians of theology, uh, to ensure that the church is being led well uh, according to the scriptures and so forth. And our, of course, our worship is a major component to that. Uh, You've probably noticed how powerful worship, not worship, but music is with our youth. And uh, so how much better should music be in the church? Yeah. Now, of course, that's just a, a nutshell on the nutshell of New Testament theology of worship. It certainly deserves more study, especially in today's worship culture. Uh, as you've noticed, where just about anything goes, I can hardly stomach Christian radio sometimes. Um, because a biblical standard, the, the accountability prescribed in the Bible has almost been completely abandoned so that recording companies or worship groups 
and their writers, they have become the overseers, distributors, and leaders of Christian worship. That bothers me. It bothers me. Worship has become an industry uh, rather than an offering to the Lord. And uh, the industry has many, many problems. Not only are many worship songs shallow and indistinguishable from a typical love song, uh, my kids know very well, they've heard me yell at the radio because they're theologically and doctrinally inaccurate. So the church, I think, needs to wake up and uh, regain its footage uh, in the scriptures. Amen? Yeah. Well, let's get back to our text. Enough on the chief musician, choir director of sorts. The rest of this psalm is uh, actually divided into three sections. Uh, there's general revelation. Okay? That's uh, God's witness in creation. It's verses 1 through 6. Then there's, uh, David then turns to special revelation. Uh, that's God's witness in the Bible. Uh, verses 7 through 11. And then from there it goes into prayer and petition, which is David's response to all of revelation. How ought we to, when we observe uh, revelation in the natural realm, and then we observe revelation in the supernatural, which is the Bible, we don't want to forget that it's supernatural, uh, how should we respond? What should be the posture of our heart? Uh, what should come out of our mouth? The Apostle Paul, he actually follows a similar uh, kind of thing in Romans chapter 1 with both general and special revelation. But as David used revelation for admiration and praise, David used it for his argument that all men are guilty of sin. They're in desperate need of righteousness. And because of their willful sins, uh, they will face a holy and just God on judgment day. So very interesting the way that uh, revelation can serve both purposes. It can lead the worshiping heart into greater devotion to God, and it can condemn the unbelieving heart. We'll look at that a little bit. So first, the rest of the verse says, by natural or general revelation, it says, the heavens uh, declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, that is the sky, shows his handiwork. So here in the text, David says that the heavens and the firmament, they both declare and they show God's glory and handiwork, declaring and showing. The Hebrew word for declare means to count or recount, to communicate, to provide an account. Uh, it's the word used for a scribe in the Old Testament who would document, he would keep accurate records. And then the Hebrew word for show means to report and to explain. It's giving a lot of credit to uh, the heavens, isn't it? So according to David, the heavens are a record. They are uh, their documentation, if you will, it reporting to us, explaining God's glory by way of his handiwork or his achievements. You look at his achievements in the heavens, and they are speaking, as it were. They're communicating God's glory, his creativity, uh, as we'll look at later, his power. And uh, of course, David's referring to not just empty space. He's recording all that is contained there in the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, all that can be observed uh, with the naked eye. Uh, I'll talk about the anthropic principle here in a minute. But one of the amazing things about uh, where we are in our solar system, it allows us to look out through our atmosphere into space, where if we were situated in another place in our solar system, we would not be able to. 
So David, with his naked eye, can look out. We all can, because of where God has placed us. It's very interesting. And so by David here, just by observation, he's saying that the heavens provide what we call today a cosmological argument for the existence of God. Cosmology. It's a silent argument, but it's an argument nonetheless. Now, of course, David wasn't making a scientific claim per se, but his statement, understand, it does dictate and control any and all intelligent interpretations of cosmology and astronomy. It's the control. Because what he says is true, and then everything else has to cling to that. It has to be anchored to that. And then, of course, uh, then, uh, just logically, that ties all other fields of science to the statement as well. Because if the heavens are the testimony of God's creativity and power, so is the earth and everything in it. Because we are, by the way, in the heavens like everything else, aren't we? That's right. If you were looking from the moon, you would go, look at that planet out in heaven. We're all a part of the heavens. Okay, the heavens. Now, of course, when I say heavens, uh, I'm not talking like the LDS theology, uh, the different levels of, of um, heaven, the, the terrestrial, telestial, and celestial kingdoms. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the air you breathe, the sky, and then uh, actually it's the sky where the, the moon and the stars, the sun is, and then God's dwelling place, heaven's plural. Um, Joseph Smith got it wrong. But anyway, um, so yeah, so this statement is also the rule for all of biology, physics, and every other true science. Uh, this statement, of course, is, is more definitive, I think, in Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, that's time, God created, that's its origin, the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. What's our universe made of? Time, space, matter, all in Genesis chapter 1, which accounts for everything in our universe, minus the, the metaphysical nature of life, but that's, of course, what is laid out in the rest of Genesis chapter 1. So everything that exists, living and non-living, owes its existence to God. So all real science must actually begin with the Creator, lest it all ends up in nonsense, amen, uh, called atheism or agnosticism rather than biblical theism. So David, when he looked into the heavens, their, their vastness, their majesty, he was referring to more than just their beauty, beauty. He was making note of the precision by which they are ordered and maintained in their courses. That's made clear from verses 4 through 6. He's not just looking at them in their st in, as if they were uh, stagnant or not moving. He's actually referring to things in their circuit. So he's talking about order. So good scientists today affirm the universe is finely tuned. It's not just a portrait. It's a finely tuned masterpiece. And then when we look back at our own planet, we, we realize that it has been uniquely designed for life. Uh, that is the anthropic principle. Uh, that tries to explain that. Um, I have a really good uh, movie on the anthropic principle. I should probably show it to you guys. It's really a great, a great show. But what they do in, 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 in all of this, they demonstrate that, uh, that we're the exact distance from the sun to support life. Uh, if, if, if that distance is altered in the slightest, we either freeze or we cook not by accident. Our, our sun alone provides a specific ray that is necessary for carbon-based life. As far as I understand, our star is the only one that we know of that produces that ray. It's required uh, for us to live here. 
The moon is the exact distance from the earth to keep our oceans alive and healthy. If it were closer, the tides would drown us, and if it was further away, our oceans would be stagnant, stinky, and dead. Seems to be important. Uh, the distance it is from the earth. Our gravity is finely tuned for life. The amount of oxygen versus carbon dioxide and other gases, our water cycle, the way that our atmosphere functions, the list goes on and on and on, how God has made the earth so that life can thrive here, can thrive here. And it will always be that way until he ends everything. In Genesis chapter 8, says that seed time and harvest and all that re the rest of the seasons, they will continue as long as the earth remains. So all of this, you know, this global scare about all of this stuff, um, it's, it, it's, just, it's just a fabrication. Um, God promised, just like, how many, you guys noticed the rainbow yesterday. His promises will endure. They will endure. So, yeah. It all declares the glory of God, shows his handiwork. Verse 2, it says, Day unto day utters speech, talking about the heavens, and night unto night reveals knowledge. So according to David, the witness of the heavens uh, isn't something of the past, okay, and can no longer be detected or understood. The witness of the heavens is going on all day, all night, always. It's always happening. Uh, you've noticed that the sun continues to rise and set. The stars and the constellations uh, continue to do their thing. And we do have seasons, don't we? Yeah. And of course, you know, David used the word utterance uh, as a figure of speech. Uh, he doesn't mean that the, the heavens literally are speaking. They require that we look. They require that we investigate and, and think through all of this stuff logically. It's acquired through our observation of reality. Verse 3, he says, There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Now, as, as you know, you don't need to be told this, that the, the heavens don't speak. But this business of, of hearing, he says, there's no language, no tongue, no nothing where uh, they do not hear. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean hear with the ear, but with the mind. Uh, the word often means to comprehend, to understand, to discern, even in English. Are you hearing me? That's what we mean. Okay, and that explains the sense of the passage. So w whenever people of any language or culture observe order in anything, they automatically attribute that order to an intelligent mind and its source. I remember uh, years ago, Ray Comfort was doing an experiment on his wife. You guys know who Ray Comfort is? People either love him or hate him. Uh, I think it takes all kinds, so I love him. Uh, if you want to debate that issue later, we can do that. But he thought that he would test this. Uh, you know, design requires a designer. Order requires an organizer. And so what he did from his house to his garage, he took the leaves off his tree and he placed them in a, in a like a funny blind like that. And, uh, and his wife comes in and says, why did you do that? And he goes, what makes you think I did it? <laughs> Yeah, and we just do this naturally. It's what people discern by looking carefully at order. It's intuitive. Uh, we know intuitively that random chance does not produce the kind of order that we see in the universe. In uh, the scientific community, of course, this is called intelligent design as opposed to random chance. It really comes down to naturalism versus theism. They believe in 
a belief rather in random chance or a divine person. But the rational mind, by simple observation of the order of the universe, they just conclude that there is a creator and that he's wise and that he's infinitely powerful. And I'll tell you what I believe with all my heart is that it requires a debased mind, a debased mind to reject what the heavens are communicating. The truth must be wrenched out of the mind so that ignorance can be indoctrinated into someone. And I firmly believe that this is primarily done by our universities today. Okay. And in many ways, those indoctrinated by these institutions, they're worse off than the pagans of old. They are. The ancient pagans at least attributed the order in the universe to a deity, or they were deity themselves, while secular scientists today attribute all that we see to a process of random chance, which really adds no value to the study of origins. It's not really an answer. All of secular science today, with all of their sophisticated answers and conclusions, provide nothing more than a, a denial of deity. That's just all that they're doing. You know, the Big, uh, the Big Bang Theory that postulates an explosion of nothing that brought about everything and then it organized itself cannot be embraced by a thinking mind. It just can't. It's only suitable for the debased mind, which demands an answer that excludes the possibility of God, even if that answer is contrary to science. One famous evolutionist atheist said that we must do all that we can to keep a divine foot out of the door. We can't let that in, whatever we do. Uh, blowing things up and making order. You know, growing up in Wyoming, I've blown a lot of stuff up. And I've never seen order come out of it. I've always seen the extreme opposite. And then I went in the military, and we really blew stuff up. And uh, houses would not be formed when we would blow objects up. You know, we wouldn't find order. The inanimate stuff does not organize themselves with precision or anything else without an intelligent agent. So David's observations and conclusions from 3,000 years ago, they're still the most rational and scientific, and they should inspire us to believe in God and worship him. But as we said earlier, what the heavens communicate don't always draw people into praise and thanksgiving. Uh, they also work to condemn. Listen to the words of Paul from Romans 1. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed. Now, in the Greek, it's present tense. So the wrath of God is being revealed now, currently, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, suppress is something they do willfully, intentionally. He says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that's us, even his eternal power and deity, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, that's a debased mind, and their foolish hearts were darkened, Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Would we ever worship ourselves? And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So men of debased minds intentionally suppress what they know 
to be true about the universe in general. And as, as Paul says here about God specifically, and he says, for this, God's wrath is revealed. And in, if there is no repentance, they will be condemned. That's the, the conclusion of Romans chapter one and two. Verse four and five, David says, their line has gone out through all the earth. That's the surveyor's line. And their words to the end of the world. In them, he, that is God, has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Now, definitely some um, Hebrew idioms there, a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Yeah. Now, real quick, there should be a break, I think, uh, between the first and second sentences in verse 4. The first sentence belongs to the thought in verse 3, and the second part of the verse introduces the next thought regarding the sun. And speaking of the sun, David says that God has set uh, or pitched a tent for the sun in the heavens. Now, I like that figure of speech. It essentially means that God has assigned the sun its dwelling place and its circuit in the heavens. Now, think about that. When you consider the magnitude and the power of the sun, it requires an omnipotent being to place it where it is and to direct its course. Have you guys seen those videos uh, or those illustrations that compare the size of the earth to the sun and then the size of our sun to the next biggest star and then to the next biggest star and the next biggest star until you get to uh, Canis Majoris. And in the picture where you have Canis Majoris and our sun, you can't even see our sun. It's so small in comparison. Have you seen that, that any of those videos? ICR does a fabulous one. I know there's a, theat a dramatized one from um, some Italian guy, Louis Guglio, is that what it is? Yeah, uh, which is cool, but I think ICRs is, is better. I'm not into the, the drama thing too much, but to think just our sun, is it's created, it's placed, it's set in its course by a person. Uh, what does that make you in light of that person? This is the, the wrestling match that David is going through in this, in this psalm. Yeah. And then he says in these, this interesting poetic language that when the sun shows itself in the morning, he says it's revealed like a bridegroom from his chamber. That is, it's radiant, it's majestic in splendor, it's proud, it's festive. And as it emerges, it does so like a strong man or an athlete who with powerful determination is set in its course to run its race. The sun when it comes out, is an unstoppable force. I remember in Saudi Arabia, ugh. You know, in the morning, we'd be up before the sun would come up. And then as that thing would start coming, you could see it on the ball on the horizon because the humidity was just so dense. And you could watch it. You could watch it. And of course, as it went up, the temperature went up with the humidity. And, and you just knew that there was nothing stopping it. And then once it cleared that haze, it was just, I mean, I think the grossest thing about it was, you know, boots that have those vents in the side. When you would walk from, it was about four or 500 yards from headquarters to my quarters, and the sweat in my boots would be squishing out of those by the time I reached it. And I thought, why does anybody live here? <laughs> 
an unstoppable force, a dreadful thing sometimes. Yeah. As David said, from the creation, we can know that God is infinitely powerful. And if our sun can't be even seen next to the, the big dog in heaven, the greatest star that we know of, God even controls Canis Majoris. It's amazing. Verse 6, its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. Now, of course, this passage, like many others in the Bible, they're criticized for their geocentric perspective, uh, which is the idea that the earth is the center of the universe and everything you know, moves around, revolves around it. Uh, but I, when I, you know, more and more we know about science, I think they can criticize all they want. Uh, the truth is they don't know where the center of the universe is or where the earth is in relationship to the center. It's man's best guess. Uh, and the sun may be the center of our galaxy, but we have no idea where our galaxy is within the universe. And a lot of people in criticizing this, they fail to mention, and, and maybe it's because they don't know, but the earth isn't the only thing moving. The sun is moving. Our galaxy is moving. It's flying through space at who knows how fast. It's very interesting. And, and the amazing thing is we don't feel it. I mean, the, the, the earth is moving. Isn't it a couple thousand miles an hour through space? And we haven't a clue? That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So I think that, that, that not knowing where the center of anything really is, I mean, the earth could still be the center of the universe. I don't think the Bible necessarily teaches that, although the Catholic Church a long time ago was really offended uh, to discover that it potentially wasn't. But um, who's to say? But the skeptic says this. They say, we know that the sun does not revolve around the earth, and so therefore David must not be inspired in his writing. Well, every skeptic I know speaks from the same perspective as David. So when they say that the sun is rising in the morning, they must be just as uninformed as David, because we know the sun doesn't actually rise. But we use that language. You know, all navigators, all surveyors assume that they are standing in the place of zero motion. And from that assumption, they perform their science, and they do it pretty well, okay? So from our perspective, everything above is in motion, and so that's how we describe it. It's just the way of speaking. Now, what is very interesting is when a prophet or an author or a speaker in Scripture speaks for the Lord, or they speak from his perspective, the conclusions are very, very different. I'll give you one example from Job 26.7. Job says that God hangs the earth on nothing, hangs the earth on nothing. So an earth that free floats in space certainly wasn't Job's perspective from where he was standing, unless he was on the moon. Okay. Where would he get that kind of information? Well, he didn't get it from modern science. We know that. So he must have got it from the Creator. And there are many, many more uh, things like, like that in the Scriptures, a perspective almost from somebody looking from space at earth, things that we can know today and see. But that's not what David was doing. He was writing from his perspective here on earth. And what he's doing is he's standing in awe of God's glory. He's, he's recognizing his wonderful achievements as he observes the sun, as he observes the night sky. And he rightly concludes that all of creation provides a silent witness to his existence, his glory, his power, his majesty, his omnipotence, which, of course, at the end of the psalm, leads him into petition and and. and praise. Not everyone, as we've said, but nonetheless, this whole thing of 
general revelation, it, it is a benefit of God's great mercy to all mankind. His creation points all men to himself, regardless of who they are or what language they speak. We can say that creation speaks the universal language. It does, with the intent that all people would seek after their creator. Now, it doesn't provide enough information for man to be redeemed, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. But it is enough to put man in search of his God, as Romans 1 says, to say that God is there, that he is powerful, that he's worthy to be worshipped, that he's worthy to be thanked. So, of course, there is no condemnation in seeking after God. He has always intended for man to do that, according to Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27. Man finds himself in trouble for looking at the sun in the night sky and then suppressing the reality that they're shouting at us. Amen? So I think that general revelation is nothing to trifle with in light of Romans 1, in light of Psalm chapter 19. For us, it should lead us to worship. Now, next week, we'll we'll look at special revelation. We'll look at the Bible and uh, its uh, witness of God and many, many, many more things than general revelation can achieve. And that's when man becomes very accountable. So let's end there, and uh, why don't you stand up and we'll, we'll pray. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have not left yourself without witness in so many ways. We thank you that according to your grace, Lord, that you have drawn us to yourself. And while we still have our sin nature, our eyes have been opened to the greater reality, not just that you're powerful, but that you're wonderful, that you're good. And you've given us many, many more reasons to worship you than just the fact that you've created us. You've redeemed us. You've transferred us from the darkness, the dark kingdom rather, to the kingdom of light, to that of your Son. And Lord, you've given us such good promises. Lord, thank you. And Lord, I thank you for my church family. And I pray that, Lord, the realities around us in nature, the realities of your word, that you'd use that just to draw us closer to you, that we would just be loyal and more loyal to the King. So thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Lord bless you guys.